This is Sports Best, presented by Reposted on the Believe Podcast Network, where we believe in the best of sports. And that's why each and every week we cut out the worst and only bring you the best. Larry is out today, but we are joined by our recently promoted intern, Kirk. He's no longer an intern. He is now our in-house relationship mediator. Thank you for joining us, Kirk. It is a pleasure to be back with you, Mr. Keller. Yes. So since our last show on Wednesday, Larry and I were talking about the Power Five conferences trying to figure out what they're going to do. Two of them have already fallen. The Pac-12 and Big Ten have called it. They've said, we're not going to play fall sports. I think the Pac-12 went across the board as saying they're not going to do fall sports, which includes basketball. Big Ten hasn't said that yet. But the other three are kind of holding strong. The Big 12 officially voted, said they are going to continue with football this season. ACC and SEC really haven't said anything. You're a medical expert. What do you think? I don't know. You know, we, we live in a world where the Big 12 has 10 teams. The Big 10 has 14 teams. And, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the Pac-12 hasn't had a football team in quite a number of years. So Ooh. I'm not sure how you expect those, uh, those guys to do any better at sorting through such a unique struggle with a problem that really doesn't have a solid answer. I mean, it's, it's bad. No, no way, matter which way you slice it. So I'm disappointed to see the big 10 and the PAC 12 not play this year, but we'll see if the SEC, ACC and the big 12 can keep it up or if they're going to fall apart. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I guess the obvious possibilities are they play the season, nothing happens and everyone's healthy. It's great. They play the season. Some people get sick, they get quarantined, they miss games, they come back or everyone that plays collegiate Division One football dies? I feel like those are only three options, right? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's – before any talk of long-lasting effects of this thing, you know, if it's young, healthy people and it's, it's not going to kill them, like my gut was, hey, go play, go play ball. I mean, uh, just because a couple guys, you know, have a fever for a day and then go back to it. But – now, there seems to be some speculation that long-term, this could do some lasting damage to your body. And that's a, that's a whole other kettle of beans, as my grandma used to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, like, we don't know what's going to happen. Everyone's kind of making it up as they go along, trying to use as much information as they can. I think people in the South are generally put football above a lot of other aspects in life. So, I mean, I think at the end of the day, they're both going to finish it out. Notably, Notre Dame, who is an independent in football, I think they're part of the ACC in basketball, are scheduled to play 10 ACC teams. And so I think that's kind of interesting. I know you're a big Notre Dame fan. Are you excited to see them play? I mean, I wouldn't mind uh, getting to see them back, uh, back out there on the gridiron, but I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure we're going to get – I think in the next week or two, we'll see if, if these things are really going to come to fruition or not. Yeah. Um, I think – I think there's some possibility that some of these teams and uh, conferences are holding out, maybe hoping for some transfers, trying to secure up future lineups. I don't know. There's all sorts of interesting, like everywhere else in life with this, there's all sorts of unintended or unexpected consequences. You know, you start talking about extra seasons of eligibility and will the NCAA grant that? And if they do, what does that do to the pipeline and numbers of students and how many, uh, scholarships are available there's just so many moving parts to something like this it's uh, it's tough to get your hands on uh, so, something we talked about on Wednesday also was Nick Saban was like basically saying patience is a virtue like let's just wait it out and see what happens everybody wants to make these decisions all these tech companies I think Facebook maybe 
two months ago made an announcement saying we're not having any events or gatherings over 10 people until June 2021, which is like a noble thing to say, but everyone, I don't know why everyone's putting, putting everything out there. I think we are in the decision-making time in the next week or two, but the SEC specifically is like, well, let's, let's wait. We don't need to make a decision right now. They could theoretically pull the plug on September 25th before their first scheduled game. Yeah, and you know, there's there's a balance between making plans and uh, trying to get things set up and organized, right. and yeah, jumping the gun too early, derailing something that could have otherwise gone ahead. So, yeah, so, I mean, there's sorry. there's three conferences left. There's two that really matter, I think. So the SEC and the ACC, maybe since 2014-15 season, the teams that have won college football playoff: Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson. Alabama, Clemson, and LSU. I think I'm seeing a trend here. Like, I don't know, should we just have those two? Should we just get rid of the three conferences and only have college football and the SEC and ACC? I mean, that's really what we've had for the last few years anyway. Uh, Steve Spurrier made this comment, Pat Dooley, saying that, yeah, maybe the SEC and the ACC should just play their season and uh, the winners face off of the national titles because it's going to be one of them anyway. You see, you're right. Uh, since the 14-15 season, when Ohio State won, it's always been one of those one of those conferences. And I think 26 of the last 33 seasons, it's been one of the teams in those conferences that are at the top at the end of the day. Anyway, so I like Spurrier throwing down and just you know chucking everybody else under the bus. Yeah, Spurrier's lived long enough and been successful enough that he can do whatever he wants. So you're from the Midwest and you've lived on the West Coast for a while. I think West Coast people generally that are college football fans hate the SEC and hate the love that's given to them preemptively. Do you, I guess, what do you think? Do you think the SEC is the best conference in, for college football? I mean, I think it's, I think it's demonstrably just like flat evident that that's the case. And I think with, <laughs> with, with uh, I mean, not because, I mean, just on the statistics alone and their, their dominance, I think you right. get, um, you know, the, with the recruiting and everybody wants to play for a winning team, you get this self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, people want to play at Alabama and uh, Clemson and the ACC or, you know, LSU, some of these just, you know, top tier schools. And it, it drives, you know, it just drives the same thing like Duke and basketball and, right. you know, uh, KU, you just get this uh, continual spread of people wanting to play for the best. Well, I guess with the system that's set up now where you can't make money playing college sports, people are hedging their bets on so many people get drafted from SEC teams, Alabama, LSU specifically. Like, why would you not go to a place where you're more likely to make money? Because most college football players at that level are gunning to make money. They're not doing it for the free education. So I think that success breeds success and it takes an outlier to even get a program back on the map or a donor like um, Nike founder, Phil Knight to get Oregon to rise from the ashes. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you got guys going to maybe slightly better academic schools that, you know, did well in high school football and maybe want to get a little bit of a scholarship, help pay for college. But I don't, you know, I don't think you're going to show up and go play, you know, at Baylor if you've got, you know, these real big dreams of making it to the NFL. I'm kind of confused about Baylor because when I was coming up, Baylor was terrible. Like they were the worst. Even when I was in college, like Baylor beat Colorado and their stadium, I think is like a half a mile off campus. 
and the students tore down the goalpost and carried it to campus. Like, <laughs> which I get tearing down the goalpost and I get the excitement of it, but carrying it like half a mile plus, like that's like halfway through, you're like, why are we doing this? Like, I feel like the energy might wane a little bit. So uh, to me, Baylor came out of nowhere. I don't know why I'm uh, hating on Baylor right now, but I guess if you only win one game in four seasons, you, uh, you know, you, you got to do something dramatic to celebrate. Yeah. I guess speaking of football, we haven't heard from him in a while, but Jerry Jones broke his 109-day silence, which Jerry Jones is notorious for loving to be in front of cameras, microphones, but he hasn't held a press conference since the draft. And he has made the declaration that, quote, the Dallas Cowboys plan on playing football, and we plan on playing in front of our fans. I think it's important. I think it's important individually, and I think it's important for the country. So Jerry Jones is being a patriot, and he's going to allow people to play in front of fans, which at AT&T, which I think it's called now, half capacity is 40,000 people. Uh, Jerry World. He's, he thinks they can do it safe in Jerry World down there at AT&T Stadium. I mean, yeah. that thing sits on 3 million square feet of ground. And, yeah, I think if you include standing capacity, there's 105,000 people they can shove in there. I, you know, he's, they're talking about the pods, 10 to 15 of your closest personal friends. You can go and yeah. sit in a little section, hang out in a pod. I'm not sure how they deal with the restroom breaks or getting beer to you, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be able to pull it off or not. I think he left a little wiggle room in his statement. My guess is that you know, he seems to me to be the kind of guy that's not going to walk back and say he was wrong. So if yeah. they let 400 fans in there, you know, across the – 100,000-seat stadium, he's still going to say, yeah, we got to play in front of some of our fans. But I think um, it's fun to speculate, like, what could happen and, like, if we follow these protocols, it could work. But I think when the rubber hits the road, people are just lunatics and they're not going to follow the procedure. You're going to get – even if they get 20,000 people in there, was like a, a quarter of what it could be, people are still not going to follow the protocols that are in place. So it's just the Wild West of, like, whatever people are going to do. Yeah, and the people that I would say are going to show up for that first game are probably not the folks that are worried about wearing a mask into the supermarket, you know, got it down over their nose or whatever. Uh, right. Like, you, you, it's not the most cautious that are going to show up walking to the stadium day one. Moving over to baseball, Charlie Blackman, the uh, left-handed outfielder for the Rockies, a.k.a. Chuck Nasby has a, a lit chance to hit, legit chance to hit 400, bat 400 this season. Prior to last night, he was on a 15-game hitting streak with a 500 average. That's crazy. Like, that just doesn't happen in baseball. I'm blown away by this guy. I think baseball is so interesting because no matter what's happening, there's statistics for every scenario. I feel like it's early enough that it's not even going to happen, but I love the fact that he might. But, like, would you – as a baseball fan, would you honor that number in a 60-game season? I feel like everyone yeah, has qualifications and there's against juiced balls. I don't it's, think it's, it's it's crazy impressive. It's uh yeah, there's of course, you know, you go people go through hot streaks and slumps. Uh but I mean, he's right now batting 472 and the league is 235. So he's batting twice as well as the rest of the league is. He's only striking out 10.8% of the time. So like even if he's not getting a hit, He's not striking out. He's getting bad on the ball. He's 34. Like a lot of the batting champions, like leaders for different seasons, have all been in their 20s. I think that's impressive. I looked it up. 
The highest ever was Hugh Duffy. When he was 27, he hit 437, but that was in 1894, and there was 12 teams, and they played about 130 games. Ted Williams famously hit 406 in the 1941 season, 154 games. I just don't think it's an apples-to-apples comparison. I think it's impressive. I'd love him to have him on a team, but... He's playing at Coors. That helps, and he's uh, facing some familiar pitchers because of the regional rotation of stuff. So, you know, there's some chance that he's got a good opportunity to continue this uh, hitting streak. But, yeah, it's going to be fun to watch, see if he can keep it up. Uh, he I did think, go 0 for 4 last night. That's, that's, yeah. that's tough. I think everyone knows this, but I love the fact that Coors Field, they keep their balls in a humidifier because the air is so dry up there. There's like a walk-in humidifier. It's like what you would get at a cigar lounge, but it's just full of baseballs. Do they let you keep your, like, Cohibas in there as well, or is it baseballs? Yeah, they have a little section for for some of the top hitters, and they keep their cigars in there. It's really nice. Nice. How many baseballs do you think they have, in, you know, in a regular season, in a regular game, how many baseballs are on property? What's your guess? I don't have any idea. I'm just asking the question. I would say 10,000. Wow. That's a wild guess. I, I read years ago that the average lifespan – for a baseball and a pro game is like two and a half pitches. I mean, they're just like, get, they just get rid of balls left and right. If it touches dirt, dirt in the stands, foul ball gone. Yeah. And it's not like they spoil. So you might as well have a warehouse full of them somewhere in the back, just in case you need to break into a new box of them because uh, yeah, you hate to hate to get to the ninth inning and not have a baseball to use. Yeah. You have to like make a PA announcement. If you got a foul ball, please go to home plate. <laughs> we'll, We'll hook you up. Larry's favorite segment is to talk about the NBA bubble. And even though he's not here, we can still talk about it. They made an announcement that between the Players Association and the league, they've come to an agreement that non-family members must have a, quote, long-standing relationship to enter the bubble to visit. The specific language used is known by the player only through social media or an intermediary is not acceptable. I think I know what an intermediary means, but it just it sounds like a pimp to me. You can't or you pimp or a, a mistress. Yeah, this is like uh, no hookers, no bumble dates, right? Isn't this what they're uh, what they're trying to avoid here? They're doing the opposite of the Olympic Village. <laughs> exactly. What uh, What do you think the litmus test is for this? Like, how are they judging? Uh, it sounds like it's going to be one of those marriage green card interviews like they're gonna ask like you know what 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 side of the bed you sleep on or hey what color is his toothbrush before you let you they let you through the gate yeah you have to be able to show email history with uh with dates stamped on it so i didn't even think anyone was gonna be allowed in but apparently once the playoffs get going they're allowed to have family come in so the first round there's a little bit more but kind of as teams leave they're opening up like as that many people leaves like that much family can come in so in the second round, players are allowed to have one ticket per guest per playoff game with an additional seat available for a child 32 inches or shorter. I read that, and I feel like when I was two and a half, I was taller than 32 inches. So like, what? that's like a weird marker, a height marker, not age. Yeah, they're probably getting that from the, uh, you know, the rides. They're right there by Disney. So, you know, they've got the, like, you must be this tall to ride this ride sign, and they're just going the other way with it. Although I'm a pretty short guy, I might be able to qualify. Maybe I can get in as, you know, I don't know, a child ad for LeBron or somebody. Kirk, we've come to the point of the show where we don't know if it's going to end, if we have time. 
Kirk, we uh, always have time. We it's always Larry's favorite moment. <laughs> it really is. So the PGA championship happened in San Francisco. Larry alluded to potential trespassing of you guys. I'm not going to have you admit on air if you trespass to watch. But did you watch a PGA on, on TV? I sure did. I, uh, I saddled up on Sunday with a beer and my, uh, my TV and enjoyed the heck out of the last, the last round of the first major of 2020, uh, previously known as Glory's Last Shot, which they changed to the season's final major, was in fact the first major of 2020 uh, at Harding here in beautiful San Francisco. And uh, 102nd PGA Championship, final round was fantastic. As they made the turn, there were seven players tied for 10 under on the back nine. Colin Morikawa chipped in for birdie on 14 to uh, take a one-shot lead. And then on 16, drivable par four, 294-yard drive with seven foot in the pen and then makes the eagle putt to uh, get to 13 under and take, take down the Wanamaker trophy. It was, uh, it was fantastic. It was exciting golf. I really enjoyed, enjoyed it. The course was, was great. Did you, did you watch it all? Uh, I didn't watch all of it. I definitely checked out Sunday, and I saw some of the highlights. I don't know if you saw after at the press conference, uh, Morikawa, uh, Steph Curry showed up and started asking questions. Steph Curry, famously from the Cal Club, he started asking him if he checks out the leaderboard, which you were saying so many people are tied at the end. And, and Morikawa was like, no, I can't be playing towards someone else's score. So I thought that was great. I was, I was kind of, I thought it was really cool that Steph got in, but also like, hey, man, socially distance. Yeah. We're not, we're, not, we're not in Dallas playing for the Cowboys. <laughs> I wonder if Kittle was there. He's got enough money to bribe his way in. He might have bet. He might have shot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One of my favorite things about this tournament, uh, not to get too golf wonky on you, but I feel like the players were complaining a little bit that the bunkers were thin, that they didn't have a ton of sand in them. But I feel like that added a competitive edge and a uh, penalization for going into the bunkers. I mean, these guys are so good typically out of the sand to be able to have some shallow bunkers where you really have to be able to hit a uh, kind of a risk reward shot. It, it put, it, you know, it kept the bunkers from being a safe place to be and made them challenging, which I, I just enjoy that. I think that makes the, makes the strategy a little more difficult to work around a course, um, especially one that I think there's only one hole on Harding that doesn't have a bunker. So oh. it was fun to watch. And then I got one last thing. Oh, lefty Phil Mickelson might have a future in broadcasting. I'm not sure if he'll actually do it, but uh, he was of no consequence in the rankings for the tournament, but he stopped by the CBS booth and, he got in there with his wit and caught those guys off guard. Did you check out any of that? You know, I did. I saw that live, and he comes in, and, uh, of course, there's Nance and Faldo in the booth, and he says uh, his, his intro line in a very dry way is, I'm, I'm good at three things, playing golf and talking golf. And, you know, it was clearly delivered as a, a comedy line, and Faldo just missed it altogether. And it, was, uh, it made for one of the more funny and awkward moments on TV. It was so um, good because he was like, well, you said three things. What's the third thing? And Nance was like, you're setting them up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that thoroughly. So Yeah, um, but people are throwing yeah. out like, oh, maybe he's the next uh, Tony Romo because he's, he's when he did, um, what was that pay-per-view event that he did with Tiger? And anyway, his, COVID with Peyton and yeah. Yeah. It was called, anyway, he's, he's notoriously chippy, got a lot of good one-liners. But 
probably you can't nail him down to sit in the booth for an entire weekend. He's going to be out there doing other stuff, making bets. But he's a yeah. Good I don't player. think I don't think he'd have stuck around for Saturday if he hadn't made the cut. It wasn't like he was going to you know delay his plane flight to uh, do ninety minutes with Jim Nance in the booth. Right. He'd have been out of there. That's all we got. Thanks for joining us today. What did I call you? Thanks for joining us today. In-house relationship mentor and mediator, Kirk. I'm Andrew Keller for Sports Best Sam. Thanks for stopping by.